and welcome to Kiwi Rider Podcast, New Zealand's premier motorcycling podcast made by Kiwi Riders for Kiwi Riders. My name's Ray here and doing something we haven't done before. We've got a bit of a roundtable conversation going on. Let's introduce the troops. We have, as usual, uh, the one and only Matthew Day Gillett. Hello. Hey, man. Coming into us from the magazine side of things, KR editor Ben Wilkins. Greetings. Hey, good evening. And two people we've never had on the podcast before, one being the general manager of Eurobike Wholesale, Rodney O'Connor. Hey, how you going? Good, good, good. And... Boris Mihalovic. Hi, Playgrads. How we doing? Great to have you all on the podcast, gentlemen. Uh, and it's a, the, so this stemmed from a conversation uh, probably oh, the best part of a month ago. Uh, and it was a, one of those, you know, group Facebook conversations uh, that involved a few guys. Uh, and Ben, you put to us that you think potentially we may have reached peak bike. Yeah. Um, well, motorbikes controversially have basically been the same since um, Vincent had a, a cantilever rear shock system and Velocet had the the telescopic front fork and we've, we've seen a lot of innovation and a lot of uh, development of that but really so for those of us that aren't as old as the hills, for those of us that aren't as old as the hills, um, Ben, what sort of time period are we talking here? Because some of our listeners might not be familiar with Vincent and Velocet, particularly the inner uh, workings. Really, so sort of since the 1930s and 1940s, bikes have had the basics of what they got: a motor cradled in a frame with a, um, a rear suspension system and a front suspension system. And we've tried a few different things, but pretty much they've not changed a lot. Mate, I, I agree with you, but what what is there, you know, and here's how we run it into this great paradox of what we're talking about. I agree we've reached peak motorcycle, absolutely, you know. They're now building bikes every year that, that they're governed by electronics. The electronics is the, is the you know, the development this year. We've got, you know, seven actual planes for the thing to be ready and all that bullshit. But I think that the basic premise of a motorcycle is simplicity itself, right? Two wheels, an engine, a frame, you know, handlebars, centrifugal force, and away we go. It, it was, you had, you know, back in those days, what's changed is not so much the motorcycle as the riders. They used to be quite hard to ride and ride fast. Now, they're quite easy to ride a lot faster than they used to be. You know, tyre technology, suspension, handling brakes. You can go much faster now than you could then. Um, that you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is it denaturing the breed? You know, that's a discussion. No, absolutely. Um, I think this whole um, the reason for the original conversation and why we're here is that bikes they've evolved massively since then. You look at a I don't know a, a 1950s Velocet or a 1950s Vincent, and you look at a a Honda um, Fireblade. Uh, SP model they're hugely different to ride and hugely different in their capabilities but you look at them it's like ah they look very similar so that was kind of the the idea of this round table to sort of get people together and go really did they hit upon that idea luckily just then and there in that moment and we've just sort of tweaked it and tweaked it and tweaked it I think you're you're spot on I think you're right That, that that the simple concept this thing that works on centrifugal force and centrifugal force, it's all we do, all we can do now is polish the sword that they've made. I don't think it was by luck. I think back then when they were developing it, there was an awful lot of different ideas and designs that were tried and tested and failed. And the, the telescopic fork and the rear suspension picked at that time, not through through luck, but through a lot of hard work. And it does work. I think that the biggest 
evolution you'll see is when you start comparing different types of motorbikes. If you look at those bikes back then, those Valisettes and, and this, that style of bike were used for everything from Grand Prix racing to motocross to trials with very little difference. If you take a modern trials bike and compare it to a MotoGP bike, although essentially they've got the same basic things, they're very different looking bikes and very well, different you, to ride. You're right, but I mean, I, I, I grew up riding in the you know, late 70s and early 80s and, you know, there was no such thing as an adventure bike. Anything you sat on was your bike, so you took it to rallies, you... You rode it through creek. You took it, you know, and and that's it. There, there, there wasn't this delineation, this this, on a distillation of, of of a concept. And I think what they're doing mm. is distilling motorcycles and various things. Clearly, it's a marketing thing. They're trying to mm. hit as many markets. They're much much more specialised now. So if we take uh, a, a particular genre or area of motorcycling and say uh, sport bikes, you know the things your R ones and your R sixes and your your things you see on track. Uh, and it, it, is what you're saying, Ben, that potentially there isn't much difference between the one from five years ago to the one now? It's pretty much the same with tweaks here and there. Is that what you're well, trying to say? Kind of. In fact, if you look back to about, I mean, the, the reason this came about was under uh, COVID lockdown, we had a bit of time. So being the bike nerd I am, I was looking at bikes on Trade Me. And I, I'd always wanted a GSXR 1100K 1989. And I, people were talking about how it was the killer bike. And true, a couple of riders died at the uh, uh, Isle of Man uh, on that particular model. Um, but I looked at the head angle, the rake, the uh, wheelbase, the weight. And actually, the numbers we have today are not very much different. Sure, um, materials technology, uh, as Boris and I had a conversation, materials technology has changed massively which allows different changes in how they manufacture things. But the basic numbers have been the same since about, for, this is for sports bikes, which is kind of where the um, cutting edge of development is for um, most motorcycles. It all develops from there. Um, they haven't really changed. They're within a degree on the head angle. They're within a few mils on the uh, wheelbase. Um, so this is what well, got me thinking about. As, as Rodney, I think as Rodney correctly pointed out, this is all a question of engineering and mathematics. This works really well, so we can just move around that small area of, you know, rake and trail and, you know, wheelbase length. I mean, what's the point of building something that's, you know, four metres long when it's going to be rubbish? You know, we're mm -hmm. constrained by motorcycle development, A, by the roads that we have, um, and, and B, by, by, by sheer laws of physics. That, you know, who, who wants, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever ridden that Dodge Viper thing. I haven't, but Jesus Christ, I don't want to either. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> thing, yeah, powered by the yeah, yeah, uh, Tomahawk. That's what it was called. Yeah, that Dodge thing. I, mean, I, look, I look at it and you think, wow, that's special. But, you know, I'm not sure that I want to ride that. I remember doing an article on it a while ago and it's something like it's got a V10 engine in front of you, massive fuel right. tank. You give a long reach to the bars and it's got, I think, four wheels um, yeah, spaced yeah. closely together. And, mm. But it's yeah, it's like a better-looking Yamaha Nikon. Look, the, the only thing that has changed the paradigm lately has been the, the, the Yamaha Nikon. Right? Mm, that, that's yes. actually been the only deviation from the, you know, two wheels, you know, that leans kind of shit. That, to me, was revolutionary, you know. Absolutely, Yamaha has to be graduated for doing something like that, having the balls to do it, because motorcyclists, as you probably all, you know, agree, are hugely conservative creatures, especially in town, you know, in our part <laughs> of the world. They, you know, they... They, they're, they're like villagers with pitchforks and torches when something strange comes along, you know. <laughs> they all storm out of the streets, you know. 
Um, that's what they're like. They've always been like that. So, Rodney, um, from a um, an engineering perspective, the the head angle on a GSXR eleven hundred from nineteen eighty nine and a GSXR thousand from a couple of years ago, that they're, they're very similar. Um, how does does a manufacturer look at what's happened and what could happen and, and what where are the sea changes going to come from? Because if you look at, I don't know, uh, I, I made a, a little list before we, we started talking. And the big sea change bikes were, if we're talking about sort of Japanese style leading uh, the development side of things, it was like 1973 with the CB750, 1985 with the GSXR 750, um, 1989 for both the GSXR1100 and the uh, FZR1000X up, 92 with the Fireblade. And every single one of these was a, a sea change bike. And since the R1 in 98, there's not really been a sea change bike. There've been developments of other things. Yeah, the um, swing arm pivot might be slightly higher or slightly lower, or the swing arm slightly longer or slightly shorter. But winglets. <laughs> we all need wings. I was They're wondering when this is going to come up. Winglets are the last thing built for dickheads. Yeah, I mean, in the from a manufacturing perspective, the way bikes are developed is. There needs, you need to come up with an idea of something new, and it's all based around marketing and what might sell. And as, as Boris rightly pointed out, motorcyclists are... And, and all bike designs are compromises, are they not? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. No one wants to change too much. You don't want to go outside of, of the square. Um, yeah. So you come up with an idea that's a little bit different, that, that might see some, some change. Um, you know, that's usually born out of marketing research. And then you start uh, benchmarking. You get other bikes that are in the same marketplace you're looking at, and you start testing them and copying them, coming up with things that could be improved, could be changed. So the development's only ever going to be piecemeal unless you get someone who's got the balls to just go, hey, let's try something completely radical. And the only companies that really ever do that, um, BMW have done it a few times with their front suspension, whether it's a good thing or not. At least they've gone out and tried some different things and tried to bring them into the marketplace. Like you say, Yamaha with the with the Nikon, it's, um, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it certainly is revolutionary, something quite different. So, um, But then again, the fact of the matter is um, telescopic forks and the geometry we have works really well. When you start trying to go away from it, you're, you're trying to fix a problem that doesn't really exist. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely true. And, and where we are now is with, you know, the... Like I said, the development these days seems to be focused entirely on the electronic suite that they produce each year. It's just a little bit yeah. better. It, it, has, it takes a little bit more control away from the rawness of the ride, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, I'll be perfectly honest. I, I you know, like Ben, I test ride a lot of motorcycles and all my friends have late model bikes and not one of them has ever gone, I think I'll put it in rain mode now or I think, mm. you know, you'll find, you'll find an end, a, a thing that works and, and that's it. That's where the bike lives forever. So I, I always have to ask myself, what's the point? You know, why, why are they doing this to us? Because it's cheap, you know. Money. Building electronic stuff is not expensive in terms of, you know, engineering and, and development compared to, you know, producing a new front end. So what you're saying is the, the answer to the question, the answer to the question, have we hit peak bike, the answer is yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's no question in my mind. I mean, I, how much better does a bike have to be or can it be? I don't know. I mean, you know, Jesus, I'm riding, I'm, I'm almost 60 and I'm riding faster and smoother and better on, and that's due to the bike, not me. 
You know, it's just, you know, we ride road tests better than iron. People are going, oh, you never say anything negative about a bike. You know, I'm, I'm nitpicking that the, that the seat may not be as comfortable as I'd like it to be or the set mm. or the side stand may be a bit awkward to get yeah. to or the key perhaps is a little bit too recessed. But nothing's, you know, head shaking now at speed. Nothing's, you know, they, they don't try to kill you anymore, even if you push them really, really hard. So, so it's sort of the whole thing that there's no such thing as a terrible motorcycle. There's just a terribly built motorcycle. No, oh, yeah. The only there, thing. there is that, right? <laughs> <laughs> there, there is that. I mean, you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot of research and development goes into making sure bikes are safe and idiot proof. You know, it's it's um, that was something I did at KTM was um, as a test rider was you know high speed stability. You got to take the bike out at every possible combination of suspension setting and geometry adjustment the bike might have, and take it up to full speed and see what happens. So that no matter <laughs> any any production bike, no matter what you do. Um, you have to do something really stupid to make it. You're like a test pilot on one of those jet aircraft back in the day, right? <laughs> Did you have yeah. an eject button, right? I mean, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't go out cold and go up to 300 kilometres per hour. I mean, you're taking in steps. You take it up to a certain speed, you know, give it a shake, give it a wobble, see what happens. And if you start thinking, oh, no, this is doing something funny, you back off and come back in and make some changes. And you do it step by step so that you're not going to go out and all of a sudden at 290 kilometres per hour have a massive head shake that you weren't expecting. So... It's, there's, I mean, yeah, there's some risks to it, but you do it in the safest manner possible. But everything is tested, and with a pillion as well. So, and with luggage, and with worn tyres. I don't know if you've ever watched um, Top Gear, and there's a testing circuit they use it in England called Bruntingthorpe that Triumph use quite a bit. And there's a, occasionally you'll see lots of burnout patches on a particular set of tarmac, and that's where the Triumph test team burn out tyres to make them worn out, so they can go and do high speed testing with worn tyres. Yeah. So now that we've sort of said that we have reached peak bike, is it all downhill from here? What do we reckon? Oh no, it's a plateau. No, Nothing's downhill. Nothing's downhill. <laughs> <laughs> downhill. I mean, we're we're blessed. We're we're blessed to live in a or, time. Or what? Where is the next big thing coming from? Where's the Where's there room to improve? How do we make that improvement? And then where is the next? Well, what, I think safety's going to play a big part. I think safety's going to play a big part in things going forward. There seems to be much more public awareness of the safety or unsafetyness of motorcycles. And from a manufacturing perspective, with all the electronics, I think that's possibly where development's going to come in is trying to make them safer electronically. That model would, anyone here, would anyone here ride a bike if it was totally safe? No. No. We ride yeah. dangerous. No, well, that, that's, yeah. I think that's, that's a very, very valid point that you brought mm. up. Safety seems to be the governing paradigm of our lives these days. You know, yeah. no doubt New Zealand's been you know, inundated with the same safety first safety because bullshit while this plague's been going on for the last three months. It's all about safety, everything, because anything can be justified in the interest of public safety. Mm. You know, if they, like yeah, it's been said before, if they invented the motorcycle, they would be banned because mm. they're in there a well, I mean, this, I think this is where some of the, the custom bike scene, you know, people going out and getting old bikes or new bikes and making them a bit custom and getting rid of all that electronics is coming from is people wanting to get back to that bare bones, just a well, just an engine and two wheels and I'm off on my you're own. You're absolutely right. I mean, the biggest selling bike at the moment in Australia is the Yamaha, that new Tenere 700, which is, mm. you know, just a motorcycle, right? That's it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I used to, you know, like, I'd, I'd belabor, you know, ABS, that's wrong. I, I'm actually, it only has to save you once then you believe in ABS. Mm. Um, and, and that's fine. That's that's a great step forward because a lot of accidents do happen on people over cooking brakes. But do we need, you know, four-engine maps? I mean, Aprilia's got, you know, a, a thing there on the um, steering damper. It can be adjusted 21 different ways. <laughs> 
Do we need that? No, oh, Matt, what was the bike we were talking about last week that had eight traction control? Oh, eight different was traction some control settings. Bland thing. Eight. Well, what do you need eight traction control settings for? That was the uh, that was the new Kawasaki ZX twenty five R, wasn't it? Yes. But yes, the two fifty yeah. eight traction control modes. Kawasaki oh, bomb. I'm sorry it has, right? <laughs> That's just nonsense, right? Well they want sixteen thousand dollars for that bike here in New Zealand as well, if they want to find liners they're willing to sell it for as well. So um it's a lot of money for a 250, but mm. again, it's... Well, you know, again, you know, the, 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 the most of us sitting here are, you know, of an age. We, we There's some grey in our hair and stuff like that. I mean, I you know, it's hard to know what the, the new riders now, maybe they expect that kind of stuff because they're all, you know, they absorb techn- technology by osmosis, you know, almost. And um, maybe, maybe that's what they expect. Maybe that's what they want. You know, it's one of those things like no no one knew they needed an iPhone until they invented it. Yeah, well, exactly. Absolutely. That's kind of like um, the most bonkers bike I've ridden in recent years, which without the electronic aids is it's hilarious fun for people that um, like that kind of thing. But terrifying for others is the is the KTM Super Duke uh, hmm. 1190 or 1290 or whatever it was. Super Duke R. Yeah, first yeah, thing yeah, I did, that's, why not? first thing I did when I got on it, I turned everything off because when I first, well, not when I first got on, but when I first got on it, I rode it and I was like, oh, I thought this would be ridiculous. And then I realized that the traction control was just sensing a minute difference in wheel speed between the rear wheel and the front wheel and the axis thing but, was... But would, would you, you would agree that you have riding skills that most people do not have. Now, like any racer you talk to will turn all that shit off and ride the bike, you know, as raw as they can. Well, that's the thing. Well, 100%. I rode that bike and I turned everything off. One blip of the throttle and went, no, I'm going to pull over and turn everything back on. Thank you very much. Yeah, turn everything back on again because this is bullshit. I can't ride it. You know, it'll kill me. It was ridiculous, but it actually may let you feel. This is kind of my, my whole point is that we're getting these bikes are getting more and more and more and more and more capable. People are feeling less and less of them because the electronics are reining them in so much. It's because people are less capable, right? I, I think the riders are less capable. You know, we cut our teeth back like in the in the 70s and 80s when we didn't have any of that shit. So a lot of people died <laughs> back in the 70s and 80s on katanas and, Absolutely. you know, GPZ, you know. Oh, you're you are exactly right. A hundred years ago, when when those first bikes that you mentioned, Matt, uh, sorry Ben, the first bikes that you mentioned, a hundred years ago, people knew how to rebuild them in their driveways because they had to, right? Nowadays, I don't know how to rebuild my MT07. Well, n- n- nor should you know because they're just too, they're too complex. But you know, you really had to, you know, like the, the, I had the GSX, you know, 1100EX back in the day, and I, this thing would sort of it would weave through every corner, you know, so we'd hang for the new Pirelli silver dots to come out. And it still weaved through every corner, but our brain style was handling better. You know? <laughs> I fitted fork braces to it. It still weaved, but probably less. But I told myself it was handling. You now it's almost like a, like a Pavlovian response. You start putting all this stuff on, you think it's better. It doesn't work at all. The things they handle like bucket of shit. 
compared to today. We rode the shit out of them anyway. Yeah. That effect still exists today. People put all sorts of accessories on their bike that don't actually improve them. The manufacturers get them pretty pretty good to start with. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. My, my, my rule with customising is if if you're not going to make it better, don't do it. You know, manufacturers mm. spend a lot of time and research making sure yeah. that stuff's right. So you're telling me I'm a naked MT-07, I should have just uh, bought a bike with a windshield instead of putting it on, <laughs> a, on as an aftermath. Now what you should do is put Rizoma stuff on. It's all the blokes riding behind you can be hit in the head where it all falls off again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Rodney, from uh, somebody with with um, manufacturer experience, wh- okay, we're, we're saying that we've reached bikes that the majority of people, most of us included, can't really ride to within a 50th percentile of their capability. How do manufacturers make them better for us so that we go, oh, this is a better bike than mine, when they're all better bikes than mine? Is it purely electronics now? Is that the new battleground? Well, that's that's kind of the field that's that's still got room to expand. I mean, the the the, the power and and handling and performance of a modern, modern motorcycle is, is more than most riders can do. I mean, you you, you got to get a, a really a really good racer who can outride a modern production motorcycle, and the only safe place they can really do that is on the track. You, you can't outride a modern sports bike on the road in a safe manner no matter who you are so there's no no drive to develop them further back in the 40s and 50s and 60s the the engine power wasn't that great and the handling wasn't that great they weaved they wobbled they weren't good and a lot of riders could outride their bikes so there's always room to move and a drill drive for, for improvement but in this day and age uh, the improvements are the creature comforts you know, the thing that you start up and you start up in the morning and it goes with the first button press. You have an emergency and it, it, it breaks and doesn't lock up the wheels and you hit a oil slick on the road and it doesn't throw you over the handlebars. These are the improvements that can be made with electronics, um, which are real real improvements for your average person. Um, performance improvements, there's no point. I mean, okay. in MotoGP, yeah, I mean, there's always a drive for, for faster bikes and there'll always be a development, but that's gone beyond what 99.9% of people want or need on the road. So what we're saying is that peak bike, we are we actually are, are not at peak bike. Peak bike is a full-on Goldwing-style Tourer that handles like a GP bike and cuts through traffic like a scooter. Dude, in your world, that may be peak bike. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think... I think where where we we've strayed away. I mean, I, I don't believe there the the concept of peak bike. I I think you you're right here. Where motorcycling has to go, right? Where where I think it needs to go is in the aesthetic development of a bike because motorcycles are always a heart choice, not a head choice. You know, you're going to buy the bike that you know you want to look over your shoulder when you're walking away, and the one you can sit in the garage and go, "Damn, look at that thing! It's just beautiful." And very few of them actually nail that now. I mean, Envy Augusta, to my mind, makes one of the most beautiful bikes in the world, the new Panigale V4. They're aesthetically magnificent, objectively, right? Whereas, you know... Envy Augusta Panigale. No, not, no, the Ducati Panigale, right? And the MV You're so blinded you by your love for MV Augusta. <laughs> no, look, they have issues. Let me tell you, every test bike I've written is an MV Augusta, something out that is untoward. But then you look at something like the unfortunately styled, let's say, the Yamaha XSR, right? I mean, that's, you know, it's a mis- misshapen thing. It's a great bike. It just doesn't stir the the, 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 the sweetmeats like it should, you know? Like, um, 
you know, like the Katana. It was a, an astonishingly beautiful motorcycle, right? That, that, that. The original one, or no, the, the original one. The, 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 the remake is, is is a bit bland. It's a bit of a stylistic compromise because it's not designed by you know, drug riddled Germans. The first one was, but um, yeah, look, I, I I think that's where motorcycles have to go, and I think that's. Um, where they haven't been going lately. Very few sort of manufacturers seem to think that's important. Is that one of the things that may actually be wrong with motorcycling now is that um, it's it's lost that sort of special sex appeal. Like people just don't look at a motorcycle and they see it as a death trap, not as something that's fun and interesting. Well, I think we, we live in a you know an increasingly risk-averse society these days, certainly in Australia. Um, you know, you, you guys are sort of like a... The Canada to our Canada to our Australia, you're more mild mannered about the whole thing. But our society's become hugely risk averse. Um, it, it's safety, 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 safety. And you know, the, the mention of the word safety is anathema to, to motorcycle riding. Once you drum that into the kids, right, then they look at it and go. And it's also very hard for a young guy in Australia to get on a bike. You know, there's a four year period that he has to spend wearing fluoro vests and riding, you know, learner approved motorcycles. And you know, think back to what it was like when you guys were you know, 16, 17, what was the most important thing was to be cool and get girls, right? Well, if you can't be cool on a, on a lamb's bike, you can't double a girl anywhere, so what are you going to do? You're going to buy a car. It's, it's not, and, you know, the, the big divorce. The guitar is much better. Learn to play guitar. It works better than a motorbike every time. Oh, it didn't sure, work for me in uni. <laughs> but I, I think that's where we are. My motorcycling is, I thought you said a katana is much better. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, you did kind of hit on something there, Boris, um, price. Um, that seems to be another sort of divergent point where, so I was just briefly looking at the stats for the New Zealand's first half of the year um, up to May stats. And same here, Tenere is the number one selling bike. Number two selling bike, GSX 150F, um, a 150 that costs three grand. Um, yeah. Now you look back at all the stats, and Kiwis are cheap asses when they're buying new bikes. They're always the top ten. So, so always, are we. So yeah. Are we. yeah. Um, but that that seems to be sort of a hindrance in the whole peak bike thing. Yeah. So it's everyone's spending right. the money on the cheaper stuff that was developed in the eighties. They're not really buying the new stuff with all the decent tech. Because I think that comes down to how much someone desires something. If you want something bad enough, you will find the money. You know, like when I wanted a Harley back when I was 25, you know, like a second-hand Harley cost three times what a new Japanese motorcycle cost. Did I care? No. I was going to sell kidneys. I was going to rob service stations. I just had to have that bike. For whatever, you know, indefinable reason, I really wanted that bike. That desire drove me. And whether it was an aesthetic thing or it was an image thing, you know, it's neither here nor there. But, you know, when motorcycles become nothing but what they originally were, which is transport, right, we've lost the plot. You know, if all they are viewed as is transport or cheap transport, and that's what, you know, those people are buying those 150cc three grand bikes are, they're just looking for transport. You know? They're not after getting chicks. Or their kids who can't afford anything else. And in the in the, the current... Well, they, don't want, they don't want it bad enough. Well, that, yeah, and, and, and you know, they, they're commuting. 
they're commuting, they're parking in, in built-up cities where motorcycle parking's free or at least cheap, and it's um, they're living in, um, you know, in, in shoebox apartments. Yeah, that society's dictating where that goes, not not the desire to ride motorcycles, which is a separate thing altogether. And then the people who have that desire... And those of us who know, we, we, drank, we, drank, we drank the Kool-Aid years ago. We get it, you know. We understand this is the best thing in the world. Um, but the, <laughs> the people that have that desire are going out and getting the uh, the T7. Seems well, to be, world over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the moment. But last year it was the KTM 790. Um, so. All right. So if. Well, the tails figures for the T7 are much better. I mean, the KTM 790 sold well, but the T7 is going phenomenally well. Mm. Yeah. And again, uh, how basic is that a motorcycle? You know, it's yeah. an upright. Oh, brilliantly. The question on that, though, is it that much better or is that, going back to Rodney's point earlier on, just good marketing? Well, I did the Tenere launch and, like, going past the fact that I got to spend a five-day holiday away from the family riding motorbikes, which was bloody awesome, um, like, it was, it was a breath of fresh air because it was, like, you literally only had to push one button and... Everything was at your control. You turn the ABS off and literally it was basically like an old analog bike, except it would go anywhere. Um, and you don't get that with pretty much any other bike um, that I've ridden recently anyway. And I've not ridden anything in a while. But So suddenly we've come full circle and also in the adventure world we've hit peak bike because we've got tech from... 10 years ago with a bike that's brand new and a switch to turn off the electronics. Pretty much, yeah. Well, wait till carburetors come back around. Uh, again, I think it comes down to a generational thing. You know, guys our age and guys like us who test drive different bikes, we're aware, you know, of, of, of what's available and we have our own prejudices that have been built into us over decades of riding. The, the trick now is to attract younger riders to what appears to be, at least in Australia, you know, kind of lifestyle that seems to be dying off, you know. Bike sales are in the toilet here and they're not improving. Um, so, I don't know, where do you get the new younger rider from? What is it that's going to attract him? It's certainly not the danger aspect which attracted all of us. It's not the cool aspect because it's impossible mm. to be cool on the things when you're, you know, riding a shitty lambs bike. I don't know. It's, you know, maybe, maybe that's peak bike has been reached and this is the platform we all sit on. I think, I think what you were saying earlier, Boris, about... Um the aesthetic appeal and, and the design of the bike, I, I, I think that's one of the big reasons why the Tenere is doing so well. Um, yeah, it's that a good whole, That whole Dakar rally thing is yeah, yeah, yeah. some yeah, freedom, there's some risk and danger in that, and that bike is, you know, the 790 KTM is sort of seen as the rider's bike, but it's, mm. it's still got that KTM avant-garde look, whereas the T7 is kind of nailed it. It's, it's right on, on cue. So. And, and the manufacturers, as you can see, are trying, you know, with that whole retro look, they're trying to yeah, capture that. Yeah. When mm. bikes were truly stunning, you know, the, the early Triumphs, you know, and stuff like that, mm. um, Kawasaki's, you know, Z range. Uh, aesthetically, yeah. objectively beautiful motorcycle. Mm. Whereas, you know, uh, yeah, that, the, the fact that the, the 
I think it proves the light of that is you know, the success of the BMW GS, which is, you know, an astonishingly ugly motorcycle in, you know, in terms of aesthetics. But, it, Jesus, it works. It's yeah. brilliant, you know. Um, so, but that's the Germans. They, they, they Aesthetics are not important as long as it's fit. Yeah. Well, I have one more question then. So back back to it. Uh, if we have reached peak bike and, and, and the next, you know, the next little steps, intermediate steps are the electronics packages and tweaking and, and you know, more maps, less maps, whatever – is the next big turning point electric bikes? No. Or is that a completely different genre? I'd say yes and no. Like, they're still exactly, like, the same package, like, we've been harping on this whole episode. Like, it's still two wheels, a motor in this case, not an engine, um, and a power source, fuel source, strapped between a frame. Like, the Harley Livewire, it, you pretend the motor is an actual mo- an engine, and... It's still that same package. Like nothing's changed apart from. I the agree. Plant. Electric bikes are coming. There's no doubt about that. I will never own one. I will never buy one. They are an appliance. That whole, or you know, that that visceral feel of you know the connection of the throttle to the engine. That that the, the whole noise and then action. That's what I want. You know. That's what appeals to me. So you know, I've ridden a live wire. I've ridden another electric bike, and I thought. Mm. Who cares? I'm not going to buy them, but that's not to say that, you know, my son who's 23 thinks they're a great idea. But yeah, I think what you were saying, Matt, is uh, um, essentially they are the same. You've got a different power plant. Yeah, um, and that's it. But like you- the bike itself is fundamentally two wheels, brakes, telescopic fork, suspension, handlebars, not a lot different, yeah, really. Yeah, it's just another evolution of the mm. same old thing that we've had for 90 years, yeah. 100 years. Okay, so the answer to that question is the electronic engine isn't the big step. The electronic engine is one another little step in the journey of the electronics packages of the bike, the same as ABS or traction control or anything like that. Well, it's yeah, a variant, you know. It's, yeah, it's a power plant change. That's all it is. You know, from like a two-stroke, now a four-stroke four stroke electric. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Now, if the electric bikes flew, that might be a different story. If they uh, <laughs> all the bikes, yes. Yeah. All I mean, the bikes. Then Olin's would be out of business because you wouldn't need suspension for a hover bike, would you? No, you need sure. landing gear, nice soft landing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that just brings back a memory of um, I think it was some design study your students in Germany took a GS, it was an R1200GS, and made a hover bike sort of demo out of it. It didn't fly or anything, but it was made out of GS parts and it looked the part. I'd ride that. I'd be, see, I'd be interested to see if there's any continuation of, um, what's his name, the bloke who rode the motorcycle on the water, off the land or onto the water. Oh, Robbie oh, Madison. The, um, yeah, Madison's. Yeah, Madison's yeah. thing. Now, that's kind of cool, you know. Mm. That's kind of cool, right? I mean, I don't know what the power of the governments would think about motorcycles that could just shoot down a crowded beach and straight into the surf. <laughs> but I reckon I'm, I'm surprised cool. James Bond hasn't taken on to that one. <laughs> yeah. I'd be keen on one of them. My commute, I have to go all the way around the harbour. If I could go straight across, man, I'd be in. Yeah, yeah, well, that's it, you know. But again, it's it, like I said, you know, it's the original design, two wheels, an engine, you know, handlebars and that whole leaning centrifugal force thing. I mean, that works, you know. That That's the thrill. That's the that, that will always be the thrill in the bus. I don't know what you can do to make that any more thrilling. In fact, the more you govern that electric, the less thrilling it becomes. True that. Um, I've got a question for Rodney. Uh, talking about development and big bike, um, and Rodney was a very accomplished um, motorcycle racer, and having worked on the development side of it, I'm interested to hear his thoughts on 16-inch wheels. They're the new thing. They're terrible. 17, they're the new thing. They're terrible. 
16 and a half, that's where we're at. So <laughs> our 17s, where we are now, is that where we're going to... I mean, we're talking sports bikes now, obviously. But are yeah. 17s where we're at? 17s have been around for quite a long time. Um, they've been the standard since, what, the late 80s, early 90s? Mm. And we're now into the 2020s. That's over 30 years. That's that's a significant amount of time. Um, 16 and a half, the only time I've ever seen that, well, I might be wrong, but it's sort of super motard is where that really stuck in. Um, but 17s do seem to be the way forward. And I think a big part of that comes down to tyre technology and the way tyres have developed. Um, but it's just something that seems to work. Uh, I think we, we possibly are going to see some different wheel sizes coming back into the play for aesthetic reasons more than anything. Um, so you're saying that we're going to see 23-inch uh, front wheels on Hondas again, are you? I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's, but that's possibly, I mean... But Rodney, surely we're governed by the laws of physics here, you know? That's, that's what's going to dictate what we I don't know. 17 on the back and 21 on the front works well for the DR. Yeah, yeah I think you know, most handling issues for, for the average rider on the average road, most wheel sizes will can work quite well with the right bike setup and the right tyres. Um, so, for a sports bike, 17 does seem to be what everyone's settled on. And it work, for good reason, it seems to work really well. So, uh, Rodney, you and I had the conversation that I was coming from a, a road bike perspective and mm. you thought we'd reach peak bike on a dirt bike perspective. So can we just talk briefly, I'm sure you guys both, all you guys have got to head off shortly, but the idea that you come to the same idea with dirt bikes reaching peak bike, I'd like Mm. to explore that a little bit. Yeah, um, a big thing that threw it up for me, I mean, I raced motocross when I was younger in my teenage years, and I had a a 125 Kajiva, um, and then just over 10 years ago, I was, I was in Dubai and I happened to luck on to the importer for Husqvarna. He said, hey, I'm looking for someone to ride a 125 motocross bike. And I said, sure, I know how to ride one and, and got a ride racing motocross in, in Dubai. Um, and there was, we're talking 20 years from the 125 Kajiva I rode in the late 80s to the 125 Husqvarna I rode in 07 in Dubai, but the bikes were the same. They were almost to the point where the nuts and bolts were in the same place. And motocross bikes, really, when you're talking about um, wheel size, geometry, they fundamentally haven't changed a lot. I mean, of course, the new ones are much better. They're easier to ride. The suspension's better. The brakes are more reliable. Those sort of minor developments, but there's been no peak change. Whereas when you compare from motocross in the early 70s to the late 80s, there's a huge amount of change. Um, Much different suspension setups and stuff. So... Yeah, that peak bike thing, I think if you look at any one genre of motorcycling, whether it's motocross, road racing, trials, adventure, um, there was a lot of radical development in the early stages of, of the motorcycling genre, but there's not been a lot of change in anything really in the last 20 years. So this whole peak bike thing is not just sports bikes, it's most things. Whereas when you go back into the early days, you could have got one bike, like a BSA, done any genre, gone road racing, gone motocrossing, gone trials, with the one bike with a few minor changes, you, you couldn't do that now. You couldn't take one motorcycle and go trials, motocross and road racing. That brings a thought to mind about um, maybe the peak bike, we've reached it for now, but maybe there's a new genre waiting to be born that might bring development back and bring something exciting that can do a bit more than everything. Maybe that's the next step that we just can't quite see around the corner. That's a possibility, but um, that's that's uh, what's that genre going to be? Yeah, crystal ball gazing. Most people have tried most things on a motorbike, but if you can think <laughs> of something new, 
Let's give it a go. Yeah, so nothing really changed. You're saying nothing. Not, not a whole lot's really changed in the last twenty years as far as dirt bikes go. I, I, as far as dirt bikes go, my my main personally, my main um, experiences with Honda CRFs it must have been about 2010, 2011. The CRF went electric fuel injection. That that doesn't really doesn't really factor as a big change. I mean, I haven't ridden a fuel injected dirt bike, but that certainly made them easier to ride um i i had a husqvarna four-stroke enduro bike um in the 90s it was a great bike but if it stalled when it was hot i could ruin a ride i could spend half an hour kicking the guts out of thing trying to get it going um electric star and electron fuel injection have certainly improved that. That, that that's a step change in terms of easiness being able to just press a button you know I've, i had a, a husaberg 570 i could stall that and thumb the starter and have it running again before we even had to stop and put my foot down. Um, that made a big difference in that respect. But in terms of the, the outright performance and the handling of the bike when it was going, not a huge difference, if I'm honest. It seems to me that um, development in motorcycling is often sport-driven. So you've got the, the Dakar stuff breeding the adventure bike class, essentially. You've got MotoGP and World Superbike charging along, making sports bikes fun. It's almost like we need to come up with some wacky new way to do stupid things on motorcycles to <laughs> bring things well, around. I, I think, well, yeah, yeah. But then Boris will come back and tell us it was done in the 70s. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I think what we have to consider is that the motors, the big motorcycle manufacturers in the business are making money. So they will invariably target motorcycles at the biggest, you know, country, the countries where they make the most money, i.e. the Southeast Asia, India, you know, emerging markets of China and stuff like that. Hence the you know the huge amount of development they put into the one two five class, um, you know the, the maxi scooters, um, stuff like that. That that's where the money is. You know this this sort of gig of you know race race on Sunday, sell on Monday is all well and good, and it's nice for you know pat each other on the back in the in the in the corporate offices on the Monday. But you know does it does it actually make money? No, you know. The big money's made on, on the smaller bikes, for sure. Human beings are competitive animals, and, and competition is a great breeding ground for new technology. Sure. Um, we always want to strive to do better by being better. Being able to make money is, is a big motivating factor as well, but it's not always a motivating factor to get better just to sell better. So technological improvements... I, I, I agree with you. I'm just saying that surely that you know, the big manu- the big Japanese manufacturers will, will focus a lot of effort on, on the largest markets there are. Because let's face mm. it, Australia and New Zealand are tiny markets. While we get everything after everyone else gets, you know, the launches happen in Europe um, before they happen here. Um, and I, I think that's that's something we have to realise. Our road conditions are not the conditions of China or India or Southeast Asia. Yeah, I think a lot of the technological developments that have happened in that have been around manufacturing. Easier to manufacture, cheaper, more effective. There's a lot of a lot of changes that um, most people would never see in terms of how things are made and the materials used that make it much easier to to produce and, yeah, and bring the cost down. Getting, getting the cost down is a big part of um, motorcycle design. Um, so there you go. That's, it's all about it's all about the money, you know. Yeah, and that's the where the marketing the development comes from is is keeping those costs down. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think BMW is, I mean, I'm not a, I I can say it openly, I'm not really a BMW fan, but they are one of the few manufacturers that 
seems to push technology outside of the racing environment. They they mm. they look at um, trying to create techno technological technological advances for things that aren't necessarily competition based. Uh, what, the horizontal of those box of twin that they that shouldn't work but does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, they 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 go a little bit outside the square for. Um, non-competitive reasons, or inside the square, as the case may be. Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's a, that's actually absolutely correct. You know, I mean, they, they copied the the GSX to make their sport bike the S thousand RR. That's you know, mm. and they openly acknowledge that. But you know, I mean, I, I'm just riding an R twelve fifty R at the moment, and I thought to myself, it's just that bloody box of twin. It's an astonishingly, it's just amazing the difference in performance from you know the model from two years ago to this new one. I don't know if you've ridden that new. The, the, I haven't the, ridden the new version. Shift no. camp thing is, it's just oh, crazy yeah. good, oh. you know. <laughs> so uh, myself and Ray and Matt went down to um, Taranaki, uh, which is where Rodney lives, uh, a little while ago, and I was lucky enough to have the twelve fifty GS adventure with that shift cam motor in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the one. <laughs> that's well, crazy, isn't it? Yeah, party couch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the party couch. Yeah, <laughs> but that—that's the whole thing. As, as Rodney pointed out, that's not driven by racing. That's just some crazy man in Bavaria doing weird shit. You know, <laughs> you know? I mean, it, it's the Porsche. Porsche shouldn't work, right? But it does because mm. they engineer the living crap out of it till it does. I this might be showing my ignorance though, but but is that with the BMW and and, and striving to do things not necessarily competition based? Is that ne like having a cross table conversation with the car, car division and and saying, you know, what tech can we share? Can, oh, can we steal that out of your your 3 series and chuck it in our motorbike? Is that that or is it completely separate? I don't think BMW motor BMW factory to know how they work, but um yeah. I they, they, they are they are close. I'm sure there's some technology sharing there going on, but whether they really share innovation or ideas, that's shift Taking ShiftCam as a um, example, I think it operates quite differently from how the BMW car engines do it. Like they've had that Vanos system since the 90s that they had in the 3 Series and stuff, and I'm pretty sure that was done hydraulically where the ShiftCam operates off, um, I think it's like a little pin pokes up and it literally moves the entire cam in a certain direction and then it changes the um, cam load. But I just look at pictures and go, oh, that's, that's a part that you don't want to fail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we were saying earlier about um, sort of how it's all circular and a good example of this would be the R18. Like they've literally gone back to the 40s and 50s, taken a design and just plonked it on a modern chassis, but it's still the same thing essentially. Except as that, a it's a styling exercise. Yeah, yeah, that, that's all it is. I mean, and, and again, it's that we, we need to capture as much of that. They, they, all the manufacturers are cognizant that the market is now sort of fragmented. There are you know venture riders, sports bike riders, super sport riders, cruiser riders. The cruiser market is very very big, as, as we all know. And you know everyone knows that the the, the parlous waters of Harley Davidson is currently navigating, right? So you know, smart money says that BMW wouldn't mind you know cashing in a bit on that. You know, Triumph, the Rocket 3, the Triumph's build is, you know, such a good motorcycle in terms of cruisers. Yeah, Harley would struggle to, well, cannot compete with that. Right? An Indian, you know, Indian just builds simply better motorcycles than Harley Davidson does. So they're in a lot of trouble in, in terms of the cruiser market. We never talked about the Briton and, ah. uh, and what that did for motorcycling because that was quite revolutionary when it came out. And there was a lot of ideas on that 
some of them good, some of them not so good. But a lot of ideas have, have been copied and replicated, and it was it was an icon. Wasn't so, it the it, first motorcycle to use carbon fiber? Carbon fiber, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, you guys first used carbon fiber, but it used carbon fiber an awful lot. Yeah, mm. um, carbon fiber wheels, I believe, they were the first carbon mm. fiber wheels to actually be used in anger. I think Kajiva used the first carbon fiber frame. Um, carbon fiber frames uh, been around for a long time. Um, there was a carbon fiber frame Suzuki in New Zealand that Robert Holden raced in the eighties. Ah. Wow! So you guys have always uh, done some weird stuff over the over the, the, the ditch, <laughs> Rodney. Um, from an engineer's perspective, what was the most intriguing aspect of the, of the Britain and its development for you? Uh, I think the biggest thing for me that I I admired was the use of the engine as a as a structural member, as quite to the extent that it it was. Um, Everything was bolted off the engine, and we're starting to see that even now, only with say the Ducati Panigale, where um, you know the the front end's held on by a short section of frame at the front, the rear suspension, swing arm, everything, the subframe is all an integral part of the of the engine, really. So it was taking rather than just having the engine as a, a power plant separate to the rest of the rolling chassis, it was integral to the rolling chassis in a way that hadn't really been achieved before. Um, and that was quite groundbreaking. Also, the placement of a lot of the components, the, the radiator being up under the seat, um, the shock absorber linkages being under the engine. I, th I think none of these things are, were necessarily brand new, but they're quite original in the way it was all put together as a single package. Mm. So it was bringing Good. all those ideas together. And also, styling-wise, it was phenomenally different from anything at the time. Look, looked like a stunning bike. Mm. Um, but now, I mean, quite a few manufacturers copied some of those things like Benelli when they brought out the tornado, they had the radiator up under the back yep. seat, yep. which had been done by Britain before. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that, and that was, I think, when we're talking about peak bike and how things haven't changed, there was a lot of ideas on that bike that, that were quite different, that threw, uh, threw a spanner in the works, that um, some of them are replicated. I think we possibly might see some of those ideas still to come. Which ones? I don't know. I think the placing the, the, the shock absorber underneath the, underneath the engine has some merit, um, depending on the engine layout and the bike and the usage. Um, I'm not convinced on the, um, the good of front forks. Personally, I, I like the telescopic fork. You've got that direct linkage from the handlebar to the front wheel without, without any other real connections going on to introduce slop or free play. Um, but, yeah, the pa packaging of components on a motorcycle, especially in this day and age with so many electronic parts, is a really big, big part of design. Um, so looking outside the box and looking to the Britain for some ideas of where else things could be put on a motorcycle and have them still work well is, is something the manufacturers possibly could be looking towards. Well, like you touched on it before, um, the engine is a stressed member and the Ducati, how it's got that small main part of the yep. frame up the front like again it's just an evolution of stuff really where we go from here but is that the next sort of place where you think it's going to take on mass appeal if you're getting rid of the frame you got fewer things to manufacture ma manufacture in theory um and it has benefits of lightness and all that kind of jazz is that something that can go forwards like logically yeah, with modern computing technology um Stress and strain analysis. It, it, it's 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 easier now to design a an engine that works as a chassis as well. Um, and back in the 
eighties and nineties, a lot of that stuff was really complicated to calculate. There's modern CAD technology um, is is making that much easier um, with um, additive manufacturing, you know, 3D printing, um, prototyping is certainly much easier now. Um, so a lot of new ideas can be tested and, and tried for cheaper than they could before. So there's definitely potential for, for new things to come out of that. Um, but ultimately, whether they're going to be major changes in motorcycles, I mean, we're possibly still going to be stuck with 17-inch wheels and telescopic forks and the same rake and angle. It's, it's just a matter of improving the chassis stiffness and or stiffness versus flex and, and weight um, and efficiency of where components are placed and how they work, small, small changes. But there's certainly some big ideas that could be could be looked at further, and the Britain's a good example of that. Righto, team. Uh, peak bike. Have we reached it? Have we? Uh, have you got a listener? Have you got a different opinion to what we've brought to you here today? We'd love to hear from you. You can email us podcast at kiwirider.co.nz. We're also on Facebook, Facebook and Instagram. Let's carry that conversation on there. Do you agree? Do you disagree? We want we want to hear your opinions, uh, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us this Sunday evening uh, for what has been. Uh, um, a great chat with many different views. Uh, Boris, what is going on in your life at the moment? Uh, pretty much surviving the plague. I have um, finished my uh, third book. Uh, I finally self-published this one rather than go through a publisher this time. So if, if any of your listeners are interested in having a read about my misspent youth, I can recommend that. It's called uh, the, uh, the the Wisdom of the Road Gods, and you can get it from www.shockandawe.com. S-H-O-C-K-N-A-W-E.com.au And we ship you. And more about that in the... Sorry? No, that's it. <laughs> no. And more about that in the latest uh, Kiwi Rider magazine as well. Uh, Rodney, what's happening uh, down at uh, Eurobike Wholesale? Uh, we're back to business as usual. Um, since the country moved to, to level three, it's been, uh, for us, it's been great. We've seems there's a lot of people out there wanting to get their bikes geared up, ready to get riding as soon as they can. <laughs> um, so we've, we've, we've been doing well in terms of sales. We've got, um, we've got plenty of stock on the way, plenty of stock in the warehouse. So if you need accessories, um, GV luggage or clothing, whatever you want, um, yeah, we, we'll, we'll do our best to make sure we can get it out to the bike shops. Check out that website. Yeah, yeah. Eurobike.co.nz. And it'll tell you where to go to buy our stuff. Uh, ben, I'm going to pounce on you. You probably haven't prepared. Um, can we have a sneak peek of what might be coming out in the next Kiwi Rider? Oh, no, you me on the spot, but... Uh, <laughs> Motorcycles and stuff. <laughs> Bikes and really... Of course, you can uh, check out kiwirider.co.nz uh, and get the latest magazine free and on demand on that website. Subscribe, it'll be sent directly to your email address as well. In fact, I can tell you the next issue of Kiwi Rider, we've got um, a road legal adventurized version of the Beta 480RR, which uh, I think you and Matt rode at the Beta launch, but this is the road version. Oh, that's that'll be interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll be I'll be looking forward to seeing if there's much difference from the uh, the non-road version on that. Well, the main thing being you can ride it on the road to wherever you want to go. Outstanding. So jump on kiwirider.co.nz and uh, hit that subscribe button, free and on demand. Uh, and, and, and and being free, man, straight to your inbox and you can you can read all those stories, you can catch up on all the pictures and you can do all your shopping online there as well. You can see 
uh, gear from so many distributors across New Zealand. It's outstanding. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time this evening. Wrapping up this podcast, gentlemen, we generally like to end on a dad joke. So if I can um, if I can give you one, would you mind? Uh, all right, here we go. Once I made a pencil with two erasers. Oh, God. It was pointless. Oh, God. You, you've given me the play. Now you've given me the play. Now Boris, <laughs> Boris, you must know people that can sort him out. <laughs> <laughs> the borders are still closed. The borders are still closed. As soon as that wonderful little bubble that they're talking about opens up, you're done, pal. <laughs> Did I tell you the reason why I sold my vacuum cleaner? <laughs> it was sitting in the corner gathering dust. <laughs> this is Kiwi Rider Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Do check out kiwirider.co.nz. Check out the magazine. Hit that subscribe button. Share this podcast with a riding buddy of yours. Thank you very much, Rodney O'Connor from Eurobike Wholesale for joining us. Uh, Boris Mihailovic uh, and for contributing to the magazine as well, taking your time out of your evening. Thank you very much for joining us as well. Uh, ben, you better get cracking on getting that new magazine out, but thank you for taking time out of your evening for being here. Um, Matt, again, thanks for always being here. We'll catch you in seven days' time.